0: All engine running. <laughs> Absolute
1: genius. Get this.
0: Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you... Science. What that essentially means is... Discovery. Is advances. Questions. Research.
1: Technology. Unbelievable.
0: Without further ado, this
1: is The Naked Scientists. You with The Naked Scientists. it's Chris Smith and with James Titko. And this week, we are going to put now, in the next 30 minutes, long COVID under the microscope. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk.
2: Long Covid is essentially what it says on the tin. Symptoms which persist long after a person is diagnosed with Covid-19. This can mean different things for different people, however. I spoke with clinical academic at King's College London, Natalie McDermott, about her personal experience with the condition.
0: Before I got Covid and before the pandemic, I was a very active person. I had relatively recently returned from living in Sierra Leone for a prolonged period of time where I'd been doing research into Ebola And I guess in terms of my passions at that point, certainly career-wise, I'm very passionate about doing disaster emergency response and medical response.
2: And Natalie, um, when you first got COVID, what was that like? Was it a similar experience to maybe how many others describe it?
0: So I first had COVID in about March of 2020, the end of March. And I guess, yes, it was very similar to a lot of people. It floored me for about a week. I had a fever for about five days and, and pretty much slept for most of the, that time, lost my sense of taste and smell, and then also became a little bit breathless in that second week. But I felt well enough to return to work after a couple of weeks. About a couple of months after my first infection with COVID, I believe I was infected again, i had a very similar illness to the first time uh, maybe slightly milder my fever didn't go quite as high and but then i developed nerve pain in my feet during during the first two weeks and that then kind of progressed to having other neurological issues even once all of the sort of acute symptoms of covid had settled down
2: and what sort of impact does that neurological condition have on on your active lifestyle, maybe on on your career aspirations has it has it been quite detrimental in that respect?
0: Yes, it's certainly been quite difficult. I can't walk very far without crutches with crutches. I can walk a little bit further, but my mobility is significantly limited, so it does make everyday life and any kind of travel just that bit more challenging. I'm someone who thinks that nothing should be impossible, irrelevant of limitations we have. So I go to uh, great lengths to overcome those barriers. I have yet to uh, respond to a disaster overseas, but I reckon that if they just provide me with a quad bike, everything would be fine. That's kind of my plan in the future. But yes, it certainly made work very difficult Um, for quite a while. I didn't return to face to face clinical work just because... I needed a lot of adaptations to be in place to be able to do that. And and they weren't in place at that point, particularly because combined with the commute that I have to do, I'm just completely exhausted at the end of the day, Mm. which is kind of what happened this morning where I get home late and I just completely kind of pass out on the sofa and then wake up in the middle of the night and kind of then wake up the following morning with a migraine it certainly has an impact on my life outside of work because I, I don't really do much outside of work. I'm I'm part of a lively church and I, I go to church on Sundays and I, I try and get to groups in the middle of the week, maybe once. But other than that, it's very difficult for me to do much outside of work.
1: It's poignant stuff, isn't it? That's uh, Natalie McDermott. We'll hear more from her later on in the programme when she'll speculate for us about what might have caused this to happen to her. So overall... The number of people who have been affected by long Covid is actually very hard to put a finger on. Different numbers come out of different studies when you ask different people. Some of those studies suggest it might be as high as one in five. Other studies say far fewer. Well, this week, the Journal of the American Medical Association, the JAMA, has published a massive study that considers data from more than a million people all around the world to try to get to the bottom of this question. And the lead author of that study is the University of Washington's Theo Voss.
3: At the start of the pandemic, early reports came out of people who had become infected and did not recover within weeks as we would expect, but kept having problems going on for months after their illness. First thing we did was look at published studies, but We struggled to make sense out of all these different reports because they largely concentrated on counts of symptoms rather than really saying, you know, how how severe is this and how does this affect people's health overall? So we turned to people who had registered to study long COVID and asked if they wanted to collaborate with us so that we could in much greater detail with Uh, information on each individual that they followed up determine uh, what the true extent is of uh, long COVID. Do we
1: have an actual definition of what constitutes long COVID?
3: No, that is one of the problems. And so what we decided was uh, rather than doing this sort of, you know, just reporting counts of symptoms, we said, okay, well, what are the big ones? And we concentrated on three large clusters of uh, symptoms. One is uh, people who have ongoing fatigue, often with bodily pains all over the body uh, and mood swings. The second were people with ongoing breathing problems. And then a third cluster of people with cognitive uh, problems, memory loss, lack of concentration, what popularly has been uh, labeled uh, brain fog. And so, does a
1: person have to have all of those things, some of those things, one of those things? What do they need to have to fit the definition for what you're calling long COVID?
3: A person qualifying for one of the three clusters would be labelled as having a long COVID. But what we found was that of all the people who had at least one of these symptom clusters, about a third had more than one cluster. And, you know, some unfortunate people had all three of the clusters.
1: And how long did they have to have had those symptoms for, for them to fit your definition?
3: We used the WHO definition, which says that you start counting someone as having long COVID at three months after the start of infection.
1: And how many independent studies did you end up collaborating with And what number of patients did that sum to? So what's your sample size here?
3: Yeah, so we had 10 collaborating studies, one in Russia and one in Iran. We complemented that with 44 uh, published uh, studies and two large medical record databases in the US. The strength of that is that you have large numbers and you can compare with controls, Because important with long COVID is that all those symptoms are pretty common generally. So to truly define what the occurrence is of long COVID, you have to have some comparison with people who have not been infected, where people reported how different they were with all their symptoms compared to the situation before they became infected.
1: So you have tried to capture and get at that problem which is many people have said well are we comparing genuinely apples with apples the before and after covid you when you do that what trends emerge then what fraction of people and who gets it and who doesn't and what general predictors are there in terms of who's at risk
3: women are much more likely to be affected at twice the rate children are affected at half the rate of adult men. Overall, our estimate is that just over 6% develops these three major long COVID uh, clusters, but at a higher rate in women than in men and lower again in children.
1: And did you manage to find anything that would be some cloud with a silver lining good news for people who have this? Were people by and large getting better?
3: our best estimate is that 15% still have uh, ongoing symptoms at one year. So the the good news there is that the vast majority of people recover. Now, what happens with that tail end, and that's still many millions of uh, of people, and we only have information going out uh, one year past the infection, we don't know how many of them will have a very chronic course of the illness. Time will need to tell, but at least, you know, for many people who become uh, a case of long COVID, uh, you know, there's there's a, a reasonable uh, chance that uh, people will recover. The severity, though, of these symptoms is pretty high. You know, we, uh, in, in our burden of disease work, we have these so-called disability weights where we give a value to the severity of all the different uh, diseases and and their consequences. And if we take the average severity of people with these three long COVID uh, clusters, it is equivalent to the amount of health loss that we estimate for things like deafness and the long-term consequences following moderate to severe traumatic brain injury. So not trivial amounts of disability and this is still you know the average so there's a spectrum of people who are way worse off and are extremely disabled and people who are less uh, disabled uh, uh, that make up that uh, average.
1: Interesting stuff isn't it that was uh, Theo Voss there. So, at the moment, it looks like about one person in 20 will get some kind of longer term syndrome in the direct aftermath of a dose of COVID 19. And about 15% of the time, that might persist indefinitely. Women look like
2: they're much more susceptible to this happening than men. So, how are researchers trying to pursue this? In a moment, we'll hear from Warwick University's Lawrence Young, who suspects that in some people, dormant viruses are being reawakened in the body, and that's what's causing the enduring symptoms. Before him, though, to the person helping to lead the charge in the United States.
4: My name is Leora Borowitz. I'm a general internist. Uh, I'm a professor of population health and medicine at NYU Langone Health here in New York City. And as well, I am helping to lead the clinical science core for the NIH's Recover program, which is a program seeking to understand long COVID.
1: And have I read this right, that you've scored Hundreds of millions in funding to look at this. Everyone well, wants to be a yes. friend now.
4: Yes, but we do pass it all on to others. Congress has appropriated uh, a billion or so dollars to study long COVID, and that includes doing observational studies and electronic health record studies and clinical trials. And a portion of that has come to us here at NYU to distribute to hundreds of sites around the country that are doing observational studies of long COVID.
1: Do we agree yet, Laura, what long COVID actually is?
4: No, uh, it's actually our first goal for the observational work and our, our foundational uh, work. If we can't define long COVID, we can't do trials to see if we can make long COVID better.
1: So, how are we defining it at the moment? When we're trying to explore this entity, what are we actually thinking or saying we're studying?
4: Well, it's actually extremely difficult. The WHO have made some stabs at definitions, like having new symptoms or problems that started after COVID and last a few months. And then others have taken much narrower definitions uh, with specific symptoms. We are doing something in between, which is we are asking people about over 50 symptoms and whether they are new or different since COVID. And using those, we will be able to come up with probably not one definition, but multiple definitions of long COVID.
1: So is it likely then that what we're dealing with is an entity that, that is an umbrella term, but it's united by the fact that everyone who's got these complex symptoms has been infected with COVID at some point, but what they've probably got is a range of different syndromes that they arrive at through different routes and possibly with totally different mechanisms and pathologies going on? That's exactly what we think, yes. So how on earth are you going to get a handle on this?
4: Um, Well, the RECOVER study is studying adults and children and also people who have died to come up with some answers to exactly those questions. What we do is we prospectively enrol people, some at the time that they have their first infection and some after they've had an infection in the past. And every three months we ask them, about these 50 plus symptoms. So we can understand how those evolve over time. We ask them if they've had them before their infection. And we also enroll people who've never had infection at all and ask them about the same symptoms. Because these are symptoms that ordinary people have in the course of their lives, even if they haven't had COVID.
1: Because Terence Stevenson, who did a similar sort of thing, albeit on a much smaller scale, and looking at younger people in the UK, found that while there was evidence that young people who had had coronavirus infection did have a certain complex of symptoms more often. He got a very similar number when he asked people who hadn't had coronavirus infection. So there must be a lot of noise in this system. It's quite hard to disentangle what's really COVID and what's background just because of what we've all been through in the last two years.
4: Yeah, there's actually many reasons this is extremely hard. And one of them is precisely that. One is that symptoms like fatigue and exhaustion and brain fog and joint pain and so on and so forth. Any particular symptom you could come up with uh, does exist in the general population. That's one problem. But there's other problems, too. So one is that the virus itself has changed over time, and it could well be that the kinds of symptoms people have long term from the Omicron variant are different from the kind that people would have gotten from the original variant or Delta or something other. Another challenge is that the treatments for COVID infection have changed dramatically over time as well. They may be better or worse, able to prevent long-term symptoms. Another issue is that people are now vaccinated. So it could be that people have a different frequency or type or severity of long COVID because of that. And then finally, the world around us has changed too. And living, uh, now is different from living in, 20, in March of 2020 uh, when the world was sort of falling apart and in 2021 and so on. So the other influences on people's symptoms and um, experiences have also changed over time.
1: How do you also get around the question of what epidemiologists and, and health statisticians call recall bias? If you go up to somebody who's got a problem, they're more likely to be an accurate historian or to remember things relevant to that than someone who never thought about it before.
4: Yeah, it's a real problem. Um, we try to get around this in two ways. One is we do enroll people who have not had COVID, and we ask them about the same things and ask them in uh, in the same time periods, so hoping that you know we're specifically asking them about things and it will jog their their memory. the second way we do this is that we've reserved half of the slots in our study for people enrolled at the time of an acute infection, meaning they don't know yet if they have long-term consequences or not. And so we can then prospectively ask them, that means going forward in time, every three months, ask them about their symptoms so that there's not bias there. And then I will finally say that we don't just ask questions, we collect large amounts of blood and other specimens. We do a huge number of blood tests and other sorts of tests on people. We do x-rays, we do MRIs, we do physical examinations, we do cognitive evaluations and so on. So we have as well objective data, which is a little bit less subject to bias. We also are doing tests to try to understand causes of long COVID. And here um, we look at a variety of hypotheses we are looking right now uh, for evidence that there's still virus present in the body we look for evidence of immune dysregulation we look for evidence of other viruses being reactivated like EBV. so we are looking for all of those different types of potential causes and it's quite likely that some people will have some and others will have others
2: Leora Horwitz from NYU Langone Health. Now, as
1: Leora just mentioned, one idea to account for at least some cases of long COVID is that there may be dormant viruses of different types and persuasions lingering in the body, and they're being reawakened by a preceding coronavirus infection. And it's the effect of these agents, together with coronavirus, that accounts for some of the symptoms. Well, possible culprits that are being considered include viruses like EBV, the Epstein-Barr virus, which is more commonly known as the virus that causes glandular fever. Warwick University virologist Lawrence Young has been looking at this. Lawrence, what's the evidence that this might be going on?
5: Well, we saw some early evidence, Chris, that if you look at this infection, which is the most common infection in humans, so most of us, that's 96%, of the world's population sustain a lifelong, largely harmless infection with Epstein-Barr virus. But what was seen early on in the pandemic is that people who had very severe COVID were actually reactivating the virus. The virus was becoming more active and replicating at a higher level. And when people have followed those individuals who had more reactivated EBV during the acute phase, it looks like that translates into an increased risk of developing long COVID.
1: (laughs) As some people have pointed out, like Natalie McDermott, who we heard from earlier with a very tragic history, she said she had a pretty trivial run in with COVID both times she thinks she had it. And it was only subsequently that she got very bad manifestations. So is that probably a distinct entity from the cases that you're considering?
5: no because we've also seen in studies and some of the studies we've started to do ourselves but looking at other other, other studies around the world that that actually some folks with mild acute covid are developing more long term reactivation of EVV as measured by antibodies in the blood elevated antibodies to this virus so it looks like this could be this this could be an explanation for why there is a subgroup of individuals irrespective of whether they had severe infection to start with in terms of COVID or mild infection but a subgroup who for some reason that we just don't understand are more prone to reactivated EBV and that's contributing to to some of the symptoms of long COVID.
1: Do you have a feel for what might be the mechanism that underpins why a prior coronavirus infection should recruit and and reactivate this underlying Epstein-Barr virus EBV infection that almost all the population has got in some people?
5: yeah there's a very fine balance in the immune system with this virus we've all got it and it lives it persists long term in our lymphocytes in our b cells in our body which is a very unusual and dangerous place to live for a virus because if it becomes reactivated in those lymphocytes it can it can cause those lymphocytes to become to or to misbehave and to produce autoantibodies, for instance, is something we're seeing in relation to the role of Epstein-Barr virus in multiple sclerosis, where you also see um, auto autoimmunity, and you also see, incidentally, increased risk in in women. So we're wondering whether what's going on here is it's something specific to do with the way that this persistent EBV lives in the body's immune system and this very fine balance between the immune control of this virus and what can go wrong if for any reason there's immune dysfunction.
1: Do we know why Covid causes that immune dysfunction and indeed is that exclusive to SARS-CoV-2 the coronavirus that causes Covid-19 or would other viruses if you looked hard enough do this too?
5: yeah i think this is what we've got to try and tease apart is it our, is it, it's a cause and effect issue really is it is it is it that that this reactivation is more likely in certain people are certain people more predisposed to this or are you just exacerbating in some way underlying autoimmune risks and pathologies and I think it's it's teasing that apart and it's why we need to integrate all the sort of immunological work that's going on in terms of long covid with understanding how the vir- how EBV and indeed other viruses might be reactivated as a consequence of SARS-CoV-2 infection
1: there are other members of the herpes virus family which are close relatives of EBV which also are very, very common. There's one called CMV, which isn't quite as common as E B V, but about half of of adults have have had and and are carrying that. There's also the the classic ones we've all heard of, like chicken pox and the simplex virus that causes cold sores. Do they also manifest unusually in the wake of COVID, like E B V might be doing?
5: Where people have looked, there is some indication that uh, in a few individuals that you're getting reactivation of um, varicella zoster, that, that, that's the chickenpox virus. And indeed, looking back in the literature, some early manifestations of acute COVID were people presenting with shingles. But it doesn't seem to be a very common effect. So it, I think there's something a bit peculiar about EBV. And I suspect, again, it's something to do with the way the virus is living in B cells. Incidentally, there's a there's a preprint um, from a group in the States who have looked at this in detail, confirmed an association between EBV reactivation and long COVID. But they also found a rather bizarre thing, which is those individuals who had evidence of CMV infection were relatively protected from long COVID. So this is all rather mysterious, and it's going to take a lot more work with a large, well-defined population to really understand what's going on.
1: And the other thing that was alluded to by Teo Voss at the beginning was the, the really strong signal corresponding to women getting long COVID. How does that square with what you're finding with EBV? Because that's equivalent in both boys and girls, men and women, isn't it, in terms of who carries it? So why would there be that sex difference?
5: Yeah, I think when, you, when you're looking at something that's so multifactorial, we know, for instance, that there's a similar association of Um, of of autoimmunity in women with other types of syndromes and diseases and indeed even if you look at cancer women mount much better anti-tumor immune responses they seem to have a heightened immunity and that's something to do with the sex hormones it's something to do apparently with work that's shown increased autoimmunity shaped by the degree to which sex hormones influence the 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 microbiome in the gut. So there's lots of lots of hand waving here, but there is something peculiar about the immune response in women. And th- that that doesn't manifest itself in terms of um, other EBV associated diseases. But it is worth mentioning, however, that there are these similarities between long COVID and chronic fatigue syndrome. And many of us have been grappling with chronic fatigue syndrome for years and the role of EBV. And again the the fact that women are more commonly affected by chronic fatigue syndrome than men,
1: and in terms of what the future holds, what can we therefore say about the likely outcome? If if EBV is doing this and is is uh, driving at least a proportion of the cases, what's going to happen to these people? We we heard earlier that about fifteen percent of people get really persistent symptoms that don't seem to go away after after years. Do you think? There's something special about them and EBVs doing that, or do we just not know? Have we got any insights yet?
5: Not really. And I think, you know, sometimes the only way to deal with this is to think about are there, are there possible ways of, of, of performing some interventional trials? Is there some way of looking at mod- moderating the disease? So, for instance, there's a interesting work in multiple sclerosis using vaccination and or EBV-specific adoptive T-cell therapy to control that particular Disease. You wonder then whether or not, if there is a subgroup of patients who have long COVID as a consequence of EBV reactivation, is there some way of of dealing with that? The problem I have with that is that it looks it's a bit it, it's a bit of a hit and run scenario because what we're not seeing in these patients with long COVID is high levels of EBV reactivation ongoing. What we're seeing is like the history really we're seeing in their blood historical reactivation of EBV. So in a way, if you're going to control this particular virus, EBV, you'd have to do it in the acute context of COVID. Um, But I think what we need to do is think about clever designs for looking at interventions. And certainly what we need to do is study large numbers. A lot of the studies I've mentioned and some we're involved in are sadly Mm. just looking at a few hundred patients. We need to look at a few thousand.
1: Well, hopefully when you've done that, Lawrence, you can come back and tell us what you found. That's Lawrence Young. He's from the University of Warwick. Thank you, Lawrence.
2: Well, apart from being down to reactivating dormant viruses, long COVID can also, in some people, be an inflammatory condition whereby the immune system remains activated long after the infection has passed and targets the wrong tissues. Natalie McDermott, who we heard from earlier, is in the fairly rare position of experiencing what it's like to have long COVID as well as being an infectious diseases doctor herself. She thinks, in her case, an inflammatory reaction against the wrong tissue might be part of the story.
0: Nothing is definite, but I certainly have some kind of spinal cord damage or dysfunction related to COVID. I think some of it could have been the direct effect of the virus at the time when I was unwell and maybe some lingering events thereafter. But my illness certainly in the first year to 18 months was somewhat progressive. And that wouldn't really be explained necessarily by the direct effects of the virus, you know, during the, the the very acute illness that I had with COVID. I think some people think there's virus lingering in the body. I'm not sure that that would be the case for for me. I think uh, maybe the virus has triggered my immune system to misrecognize some of my own cells in my body. And so my body's created antibodies to those cells, and is then attacking elements of my host cells, and particularly in my case, nerve cells, and causing some kind of ongoing damage or dysfunction of those cells. And I suppose the other other possibility, and there's some data to support what I just said, and there's some early data to support the possibility that, so when you have Are first infected, and your immune system is interacting with the virus, it produces these pro inflammatory chemicals that we call cytokines. And these can trigger inflammation within the body. And so I think the other possibility is that one, those chemicals were triggered at the time that I had acute COVID and they caused some damage. But for some reason, they may also be lingering in my body, whether that's because. I've got these antibodies that are misrecognizing my own cells and that are triggering them, or whether that's just because there's some kind of persistent inflammatory trigger in my body that's that's constantly resulting in some of these chemicals being secreted. And those chemicals themselves can cause damage to cells and inflammation. I guess those are the three things that I'm kind of considering when it comes to ma- uh, myself. As you said, I think there is a huge variety in the symptoms and presentations of post-Covid problems that we sort of term long Covid, but that's very much a big umbrella term for what's probably several different pathologies going on in different people's bodies.
2: Thanks very much to Natalie McDermott.
1: So it's a tough one, isn't it? We've scratched the surface here. We think we've got to the bottom of roughly how many people are developing this condition But we are, at the moment, not really much closer to explaining exactly what it is in everybody. And hopefully, with the scale of the studies that are now taking place in the next few months to years, we'll get a clearer picture. That's where we have to leave it, but uh, do join us next time when we'll be on the deck of Sea Monster. This is the repurposed oil rig that is enjoying a rebirth as a visitor attraction. We're going to be looking at the question of the circular economy and recycling The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye.